Today on Blue 58, everybody wants a do-over now and then, and two weeks after the Packers made a controversial pick in the first round of the 2020 NFL Draft, we're going to redo a different draft, traveling back to another controversial first-round decision. Then we're back at it with a very timely chapter of Take Your Eye Off the Ball in the Blue 58 Book Club. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. I figured now that we are two weeks past the 2020 NFL Draft, we could do one more draft-related segment and do another draft do-over. We did one of these last spring and redid the 2015 NFL Draft, the one where the Packers took Demarius Randall in the first round. This time, we're going back to 2017. But before we do that, I want to follow up on a couple things from the last episode. First, I realized that I left one notable name out of the roster prediction. Not a guy that I thought would make the roster, a guy who I had on the outside looking in, but neglected to include. Oren Burks. Oops, that's my bad. Uh, Should have had him in there uh, as as a name we talked about. Not as a guy that I think is going to make the roster. If Oren Burks was going to make the roster, we'd have, we shouldn't be doubting that by now. He shouldn't be on the bubble, shouldn't even be a, a question now. With as much uncertainty and need, and all the other stuff that the Packers have had at inside linebacker, there should be no question by now that Oren Burks can answer those questions if he was capable of doing so. Evidently, he is not because he cannot even get on the field, and that's probably the reason that I forgot to mention him because he hasn't done practically anything worth mentioning. So I think Oren Burks is on the outside looking in at the end of training camp, whenever that might be. I think that is the case, even if there is some sort of abbreviated, unusual, non-typical training camp situation this year, which it seems like there is a good possibility there is going to be. Uh, Before I get to the second follow-up, we should probably mention that the NFL schedule reveal has happened If you follow my work at acmepackingcompany.com, I've got a reaction post up by the time you read this or hear this podcast, hopefully, some point Friday, the 8th of May that is coming out, just talking through all 16 games on the Packers' schedule. As far as off-season hype stuff, the schedule reveal just doesn't do it for me. You know the opponents well in advance. Beyond that, I honestly just don't care when the Packers play these guys. They're going to play all 16 games. We're going to watch all 16 games. When it happens does not matter a whole lot to me. I know there are going to be more primetime games than I really prefer. I love a noon kickoff. Nobody cares what I think. Those are all my NFL schedule thoughts. Back to roster predictions. Kyle from Peoria, Illinois, had a really good question about something that changed with the collective bargaining agreement. He writes in to the powersweep 1959 at gmail.com. Quote, I remember hearing something about expanded rosters recently with a 55-man roster where one of the extra men must be an offensive lineman. Is that true? And if so, how does a team prove that one of the extra two is an offensive lineman? Couldn't they just make up their preferred roster and claim that, hey, this eighth lineman is really our extra guy? End quote. Good question, Kyle. couple things that we have to unpack here. First, this is an important thing to remember as the Packers shape their roster this year because there's actually more to this than just the the 55-man thing. The 55-man thing is actually a misconception. What actually happened was that practice squads have expanded from 10 guys to 12 guys for the next two seasons and 14 starting in 2022. 
Every week, and this is according to NFL.com, two practice squad players can be elevated to the team's active roster. Effectively, that means that the, the active roster is 55. However, there is a key distinction there. Another thing that was added into the collective bargaining agreement is you can't do the thing where guys get the, the full roster pay anymore. At least that was one of the proposals. I'm not sure if that was actually carried on, um, but I think that was part of the final thing. Anyway, your roster is not technically 55, but it is effectively 55. That just means that if you have a question mark or a question about a guy, say the Packers have a week where they've got a couple running backs banged up. Say they carry Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams, A.J. Dillon, and Tyler Irvin into the regular season and keep Patrick Taylor on the practice squad. Well, one week, Jamal Williams twists an ankle and Tyler Irvin tweaks a knee. Suddenly, the Packers are down to two healthy running backs. That week, they could elevate Patrick Taylor from the practice squad to the quote-unquote active roster and just have him around where they could just activate him on game day and they wouldn't have to make that extra transaction to get him to the 53, release a different guy, blah, blah, blah. It's just helping guys have a little bit of extra flexibility there. Guys meaning teams, I suppose. So it's not actually 55, it's 53, but those extra two guys are going to be important and they're going to be rotated this through throughout the season. And I'm not sure how that's really going to work with teams like designating those guys. That's something we're going to have to learn about because this is new. The other important thing to remember here, and this I think is where Kyle's question comes from, is teams can now dress up to 48 guys for a game. You can dress 47 players for a, 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 a week instead of 46. And you can actually get up to 48 if you dress eight linemen. So I think that's the genesis of Kyle's question there about, about that eighth lineman. Now, the rub that Kyle points out is, is couldn't a team just say, hey, this six foot three, 220 pound guy who runs a 4440 is definitely our eighth lineman. He is not a practice squad wide receiver that we're just keeping around just in case we would happen to need him. He is definitely our eighth offensive lineman. Obviously, a team could do that. I think everyone's going to see through that pretty quickly. And I would imagine that even if it's something that you could technically do, the NFL is going to be monitoring it pretty closely and slapping anybody who tries to do something like that. The NFL is pretty good at monitoring loopholes in the rule book and closing them pretty quickly and forcefully. And that seems to be a theoretical loophole. Definitely not the spirit of the law to try to do that. Yes, I guess to answer Kyle's question or that part of the question, that is something they could do, but whether or not you do it is is probably whether or not you think you can get away with it, and I don't think you probably are going to. Um, so to answer the question, real, top-level, simple, no rosters have not moved to 55, technically. There are just two extra practice squad guys who can practice as functional members of the 53-man roster every week. How that exactly works, we have yet to see because it is completely new. You can also dress up to 48 guys on game day provided you dress eight linemen, and that is something the Packers will probably take advantage of. Let's do something completely different. I like looking at what-ifs through Packers history. What if things had gone just a little bit differently? And the draft is a great opportunity to do that because you have a list of alternative things that could have happened. 
when you do the NFL draft, there is 240-some selections, and you can see all the guys who went after the guy that your team picked. It's pretty easy to say, well, I would just take this guy and this guy and this guy instead. But if we're going to go back and redo the NFL draft, we're going to redo the 2017 draft, I think we have to give ourselves some rules. So three rules here. First, no stacking the board. You can't just say, I'd take player X in round one when he was originally like a fifth round pick. Congratulations to you. You can identify the good players with 2020 hindsight. Very good job. Duh. That defeats the purpose of this exercise, so we're not going to do that. Our rule then is that you can pick from players that went after your team slot, but you have to have picked a guy who went in the next 10 positions or he must be the next player off the board at their position. So say the Packers are picking at 61 and in 2017 they took Josh Jones. You can take any of the players that take that went in the next 10 slots up to 71 or you have to take the next safety off the board. Those are your options. Finally, if the Packers traded up, you are stuck with the slot. But if they traded back, you have the opportunity to stay with their original slot or take the trade. So in 2015, if we're redoing that draft slot or draft, uh, when the Packers traded up to take Brett Hundley, sorry, we're stuck with the with the trade up st- trade up slot. Because then you start going down the rabbit hole too far. Well, if they hadn't done this, then they could do this, then this, then this, and then it just kind of gets silly. Obviously, this is a little bit silly to begin with, uh, but we got to give ourselves some rules. So, with that in mind, let's set the board here. Here are the picks the Packers actually made. 33rd overall, they took Kevin King. 61, they took Josh Jones. 93 was Montrevious Adams. At 108, they got Vince Beagle. At 134, they got Jamal Williams. 175 was D'Angelo Yancey. 185 was Aaron Jones. 212 was Kofi Amici. 238 was Devontae Mays. And rounding out with pick number 247 was Malachi Dupree, the wide receiver out of LSU. So let's go pick by pick here and see what else the Packers could have done. Since the Packers traded out of their first slot, we have the opportunity to either take their original position or do the trade. Their original decision, picking 29th overall in the first round, was to trade out, picking up picks number 33 and 108 instead of standing pat. In the redo, I don't think I would trade out. Instead, I would stand pat and select TJ Watt. Yes, we're going to go there. Now, I've defended this decision in the past, to trade out of the pick. And I think all things being equal, sitting here in 2020, I might still trade out of that spot. However, that is only knowing what we know now. Knowing that the Packers signed Zedarius and Preston Smith and drafted Rashawn Gary. Knowing that Kevin King finally got healthy in 2019 and had a fairly okay season, if we're generous. Knowing that Vince Beagle turned out to be pretty okay on his third team in three years. That's a lot of caveats. So, okay, maybe I wouldn't stand pat and take Kevin King or trade out and then take Kevin King. But I think it's also important, even if we criticize this pick, to remember the context. The Packers drafted Kevin King and Josh Jones after getting absolutely smoked in the 2016 NFC Championship. 
Ladarius Gunter is still recovering from getting run over by Julio Jones in that game. Their defensive backfield was bad, and it wasn't getting better anytime soon. Because don't forget, Sam Shields was also on his way out of town with his concussion that he sustained in the 2016 season. The Packers thought he wasn't going to play again. The Packers needed help in their defensive backfield in a bad way. Don't forget, Quentin Rollins was there also being very bad. Their defensive backfield was in bad shape. And it's easy to say that T.J. Watt probably would have been the better pick, but it's not necessarily an easy decision, especially if you believe that it's more important to cover than to rush. It's it's at least defensible. Or at least, if not defensible, you can see a case for it. Their next pick the Packers make was 61st overall. Originally, they picked Josh Jones, the big athletic safety, who turned out to be just kind of a big athletic nothing. The very next pick, which is what we would do in the redo here, was wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster. And I think if you look back at draft picks over the past 18, 19, 20, three years, there was one that you could change that would have the most impact on the current Packers. It would probably be this one. Everything else the Packers have at least shored up elsewhere. So we talk about not taking T.J. Watt. They didn't do that, yep. But they at least eventually got some edge-rushing help. A couple pretty good ones. And also Rashawn Gary. But here, they pass on a wide receiver. And they've never really gotten a comparable prospect. They drafted three guys in 2018. None of them have really panned out. And now here we sit after what was supposedly a historically great wide receiver class, having collected no wide receivers in Green Bay. If you could change one... Juju Smith-Schuster is probably the one. And there's another one coming up later on that might have helped in 2020 as well. The next pick, the Packers pick 93rd overall, their third-round pick. Their original selection was Montrevious Adams, who's been boring and ineffective and generally just not on the field in his first three seasons. In the redo, i probably take Rasul Douglas, a cornerback. Kenny Galladay, also an option here, but we've already picked up a wide receiver. Just beyond pick 93, there are a few defensive back options, and the 2017 Packers, having not taken Kevin King, having not taken Josh Jones, and still having all the issues in the defensive backfield that they do, still need some significant help. And of the handful of defensive backs, he is the most serviceable. He probably wouldn't have solved the Packers' problems in the defensive backfield, but then again, neither did Kevin King. Douglas is probably okay. At pick 134, the, select, the, pick, the Packers selected Jamal Williams, who's been okay to fairly good in three seasons in Green Bay. Not spectacular, but he probably brings more to the table than he takes off. At any rate, he doesn't really take anything off the table. doesn't hurt your offense when he's out there. He's not great, but he's not a net negative, I would argue. There is some data that probably disagrees with me there. But all things considered, Ben fairly serviceable. But if we bend the rules just ever so slightly and go 12 picks beyond selection number 134, the Packers can select tight end George Kittle, who I think would have looked pretty good in green and gold. The Packers have had tight end problems ever since Kevin, or Kevin Cook, Jared Cook 
left after the 2016 season. And they had plenty that season as well because he was hurt for a lot of it. But it's been a problem pretty much since Jermichael Finley got hurt. Cook just the lone bright spot there in addition to Richard Rodgers' one notable catch in Green Bay. You know the one. George Kittle was there. 12 picks after Jamal Williams. Pick number 175 in the fifth round. Originally, the Packers picked D'Angelo Yancey, who did a whole lot of nothing in Green Bay on the practice squad for a year and a little bit more. The Packers actually traded back to pick number 175 from 172 or from 172 to 175 and also picked up 238. So we're going to keep that trade. And in the redo, we will take Aaron Jones here instead of at 182, just seven picks later. Really no reason to keep D'Angelo Yancey around, so you might as well just take Aaron Jones and get it over with. At 182, Aaron Jones the pick. Obviously, he's been good, but since we took him at 175, we don't have to do that. In the redo, I'll take Xavier Xavier Woods. Safety Xavier Woods, excuse me. He's been a fairly consistent starter for the Cowboys. Solid, not spectacular. Now you've got two DBs for the 2017 Packers to fill in for the ones that they missed. A cornerback and a safety in Woods and Douglas. Moving right along... The Packers selected Kofi Amici at pick number 212 in the sixth round. Another guy they thought they could work the tackle to guard type pipeline on. Originally even announced as a center. They thought they, they might be able to convert him there. Turns out it did not work. Um, despite all of his very prodigious athletic gifts. In the redo, I'd take defensive lineman Ifiadi Adenigbo. He's bounced around the league a little bit, but finally came into his own for the Vikings last year, who actually took him originally there in the sixth round, had seven sacks in Minnesota last year. Pretty solid player. Now the Packers have their defensive lineman to fill in for Montrevious Adams. In the seventh round, the Packers had two picks near the very end. At 238, they took Devontae Mays, and at 242, they took Malachi Dupree. And in the redo, I would take both of these players again. Mays kind of fills that Jamal Williams role, a big, beefy, pretty athletic back. He was very bad his first round in Green Bay. Um, So maybe he doesn't stick in Green Bay even this time. Same with Malachi Dupree, another big upside prospect. Try it again, see what happens. You never know how things might work out. And if, if neither of these work out, who cares? It's 238 and 242. So to recap, in our redone draft, We've got T.J. Watt at 29, Juju Smith-Schuster at 61, Rasul Douglas at 93, George Kittle at 134, sticking with Aaron Jones but bumping him up to 175 and then taking safety Xavier Woods at 182, Ifiadi Odenigbo at 212, and then Mays and Dupree to round out our picks. There are some significant improvements here. J.J. Watt, Juju Smith, or T.J. Watt, excuse me, Juju Smith-Schuster and George Kittle obviously would be much Much needed in Green Bay. Big improvements for the Packers at each one of those positions over what they've tried to do instead. You still get Aaron Jones. You still get two defensive backs and maybe some more upside near the end of the draft. An athletic defensive lineman who might be able to actually get on the field instead of Montrevious Adams. And another shot at Devontae Mays and Malachi Dupree. You like the redraft? What do you think? Let us know. Let's move on to the Blue 58 Book Club. We haven't done this in a couple weeks Time to get back on the horse now. Chapter 4 here, all about the running game. Timely chapter, huh? Touches on a lot of things that we talked about. So let's look at a few of the things our friend Mr. 
Kerwin brings up. He argues that the big back is making a comeback. And this is something that we've spoken about a little bit over the past couple weeks. Is there going to be a shift back to power running in the NFL? A little bit skeptical. Um, Because the examples he throws out are not really anything like the running backs in the NFL today. Larry Zonka, Franco Harris, John Riggins, Sam Cunningham. Yes, big backs, but Zonka, 6'3", 237. Harris, 6'2", 230. Riggins, 6'2", 230. Cunningham, 6'3", 226. Any of those guys sound like an NFL running back today? That's more like the H-back type, right? He says we're seeing more guys that are like that in the modern NFL, and he cites the 2014 rushing leaders as an example. Well, that's five years out of date, so let's look at today. Who's the top 10 in rushing in the NFL today? Derrick Henry, obviously a big back. Nick Chubb, 5'11", 227. Christian McCaffrey, 5'11", 205. Ezekiel Elliott, 6'2", 228. Chris Carson, 5'11", 222. Then you've got Lamar Jackson, a quarterback. Leonard Fournette, 6'228". Josh Jacobs, 5'10", 220. Joe Mixon, 6'1", 220. Dalvin Cook, 5'10", 210. They're not the same kind of big backs. In fact, they're more like the muscly action stars that I've referred to in the past. They're not big, tall, just guys that are big. These guys are built to to have a lot of mass in a small package. They're not just big. That said... I think there is probably going to be something of a correction towards bigger offenses to counter those smaller, faster defenses. Kerwin also argues that the running game helps the passing game, both in, without saying it, establishing the run and in making things easier for your offensive linemen. I'm skeptical of this one, too. There's a lot of data out there that shows the running game doesn't have a ton of impact on the passing game. Most teams just pass better when they pass better, not because they use the run to set up the pass. And the same is true for play action, actually. Running the ball does not have a correlative effect on how effective your play action passing is. There may be some small psychological thing in the minds of defenders, but running the ball more does not make your play action passing more effective. And really, the quality of your running does not make the play action pass more effective. But Kerwin does have some good points. Oh, we should talk one more about some something that he brings up uh, before we get to the stuff that I think is really applicable to the Packers. This one is kind of a bridge point. Uh, he talks about running backs wearing down in college. And this is something that I brought up with Jonathan Taylor, with, uh, with A.J. Dillon, and a couple other running backs. So I just did a big research project on this, thinking this was the case. My hypothesis was that running backs who carry the ball a lot in college wear out faster in the pros. And the thinking was that you'd see that reflected in their yards per carry average. People who had higher carry totals in college, I figured would see a dip in their yards per carry total faster. And it turned out to not really be true. Sorted the running backs into a bunch of different buckets, looked at every running back who had the opportunity to play at least five seasons from 2000 to 2015 There really was not a lot of difference over the first five years for running backs that had a lot of carries in college to running backs that didn't. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but I think ultimately if you've got a guy who's who's got a clean injury history, 
who is a good athlete, chances are they're going to be similarly productive in the pros. I might have to refine that research a little bit, but the early returns are that it doesn't have a lot of effect on your pro production. Kerwin raised two really good points, though, that I think really apply to what the Packers are trying to do. He talked about managing your backfield um, in terms of how you construct your, your team in a couple of different ways. First, he pointed out that it's it's easy to build a cheap, effective running game. Yes, but you have to do it correctly. You can get a lot of running back for a very small amount of money or draft capital. However, the Packers chose to spend a lot of draft capital on their running game. Second round running back, like A.J. Dillon, is fairly expensive as far as running backs go. Plus, you used a second round pick on a position that you know you can fill in later. There are plenty of good running back options later on that you could have could have used. And that's where the Packers' decision to trade up to get Jordan Love really has some cascading consequences because the Packers, in trading that fourth round pick, had one fewer option for filling in their roster later on. This is why I'm against trading up as a rule because it, it takes away options for you to do things like picking up a cheap running back later on. But his overall point that you can build a running game pretty cheaply is a good one. Look who had the Packers have on in their backfield other than A.J. Dillon. Aaron Jones, fifth-round pick. Jamal Williams, fourth-round pick. Tyler Irvin, midseason pickup at free agent. As a free agent. Dexter Williams, sixth-round pick. Patrick Taylor, undrafted free agent. That's a lot of bodies that you feel pretty good about that you got for pretty cheap. That's a pretty good way to build a roster because you've got some effective players there and all of them are fairly affordable. Secondly, he made a really good point about having multiple running backs. It's not just that you have a guy who's big and a guy who's fast, a guy who's a power running back and a guy who's a a more speed-based running back. You've got to have complementary but also overlapping skill sets as opposed to guys that can just do different things. It gets really easy, as he pointed out with Ron Dane, to defend your team if you know that every time a certain player comes in, they can only do these things. So if your big, powerful running back can only do big, powerful running back things, it's worth practically nothing to your team because the defense knows exactly what you're going to do. I think we could probably talk more about this chapter and maybe I'll think about it a little bit more and see if there's more that we can pull out of it here. Maybe we just got to talk a little bit more about what the data says about the running game in an upcoming podcast because I think we're getting a pretty clear message in Green Bay that running the ball is going to be a big part of their future and we should probably have a good handle on exactly what to think about the running game as we go forward here. But That is a discussion for another day, because that's all I've got for you in this episode. I do appreciate you listening in. If you got something out of this show, I'd appreciate it if you shared it with somebody you think would benefit from it, because that's how we uh, expand this whole operation, how we continue this conversation around the Packers, and ultimately how we help everybody become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.